It's an absolute privilege to welcome you today to this conversation with Florence Lamb. Florence doesn't need much introduction. She's an absolute beacon in the sector. She trained as an engineer in Cambridge and then trained in architecture in the UCL, Bartlett. She's the global lighting design lead for Arab and has a string of qualifications and awards and celebrations to her name, including most recently the President's Award from the SLL 2020. This is part of a series of conversations building on the original Lunar project, which was to raise awareness of the impact of healthy lighting on health and well-being. And we realised very soon that although there was clear case for how light shapes every aspect of our lives, a lot of the lighting in the places where we live and particularly where our children live, chosen by people with little or no training in lighting. And so I've been working with a team of manufacturers and an amazing team from all over the world, including the World Standard and others, on the Lunar Pro project to raise awareness of the business case for healthy lighting. And Florence kindly agreed to speak to me about that. And as we started to speak about what human-centered lighting meant and how it's become a marketing term, she came up with this beautiful phrase, humanity-centered lighting. And then we were talking about what it would take for that to become the new normal because we know how light affects us and how actually if we're happier and healthier, we work better, it can be good for the bottom line too. So Florence has kindly agreed to share her vision for humanity-centered lighting, which goes beyond the minimum specification into something which is much better for us and for the planet. So I'm going to invite Florence to share your wisdom on humanity-centered lighting. Over to you. Thank you, Shelley. And I'm not sure about the wisdom side, but what I would really hope that I can see a lot of friendly faces there, that has opened up a, a conversation that has been pondering. I've been sort of using this uh, Lighting for Humanity as the theme for quite a number of talks for the last couple of years. And it is really a call for a new approach to sustainable development. And uh, as uh, how Shirley um, introduced just now, the, the conversation about lighting in, around in the lighting industry has been very much focused on human-centered or human-centric lighting. And the reason why I really want to shift that to humanity is because I want to open up our design conversations and bring to the fore that uh, for healthy people, we also need to think about and, and we need to really uh, work towards a healthy planet as well. So first off, I just want to reflect on my own career journey the multiplicity and the richness of this journey in lighting has actually been a result of how the profession itself has broadened and evolved over decades. From science, design and engineering, art and architecture, since the early days to this day about urban design, impacting the social economic values of society at large, embracing the new technology innovations, big data, AI and machine learning, etc. One question that I tend to get asked a lot is about roadmap to the future. Well, when you think about this mitigating and tackling the climate change, the equipment moonshot of our time, what is the role of lighting and what can we confront, how can we actually confront the climate change and reshape a better world? And what I mean by better, it's got to be the one where the inhabitants, each one of us, have a much safer, healthier, much better access to amenity, environment, live in an inspiration surroundings that is affordable as well as sustainable. And I believe 
design creativity has got to start from humanity. Hopefully some of you are, are familiar with the UN Sustainable uh, Development Goals. Lighting is not just about people and society, but also about the planet as well. So switching from human to humanity-centered design would mean holistically embracing the UN SDG to create a better world, what it looks can look like in 2030. But then the pursuit of sustainable development is a balancing act. It is about creating a balance between people and planet to shape a world that is safe, inclusive, resilient, and sustainable. And as a professional of the built environment, we play a critical role in moderating this delicate balance. And lighting can play a significant role in many of the UN SDGs, from ensuring good health and well-being to building resilient cities and communities while tackling climate change. But how? Really just think about your projects, the projects that you've done in the past and what you're doing right now. Here is just a few examples that I've thought through the selection of projects that we've done from hospitals, schools, what are the really sort of big sustainable outcome that could achieve and how lighting can make a difference. Whether it's a public realm space, dynamic facades that communicate to the, to the public in a meaningful way rather than just flashing lights, uh, workplaces, how we repurposing some of the maybe disused underground facilities into public spaces, how we can create a kind of rainforest greenhouse in an indoor environment for scientific institution, but also educating public as well. So what we do as licensed design is also contributing, making spaces work for people, but actually doing a lot more than those just being spaces. And for lighting to be truly for people and planets, there's something I've been pondering on the three areas. And of course, from a human perspective, to improve health, safety, well-being holistically from day to night, but also the ecological consideration in our design beyond just mitigation. What new knowledge or actions we need to take to enable and realize the direction that this site is going about the urban greening or biodiversity net gain. All these things is we need to put extra effort to, to work out what we, it takes, but also what we can do better. And of course, circular design approach, the depletion of carbon has, has been a root cause for many of the global challenges. In order to achieve the UN climate targets, it's critical for us to also transform the way how we design, specify, make and use products, what we can do to integrate the highly fragmented construction industry. So enough for now the kind of the very so broad brush context of what this humanity is really mean. For now, for today, uh, let's focus on the key topic that Shirley very much wants us to, to start having a discussion on is uh, what is lighting for human health is about. So let's um, do a bit of definitions. Human health is defined not only by the physical state of individuals, but rather is a state of a complete physical, psychological and social well-being. And first of all, I'm no scientist but have to assume that those listening is already quite engaged and probably familiar with the non-visual effects of light and some of the basic scientific knowledge on how light can affect our circadian rhythms, the superchiasmatic nucleus, the SCN master clocks in our brains, the third receptors, etc. What we mean by melatonin, how light suppresses the melanopsins and also all these circadian stimulus, different ways of calculating that as well. So what I do want to start with is actually talk about the empathetic, the emotional value of light, which can actually impact the psychological and the social well-being of people. 
And uh, in physics, light is a wonderful piece of scientific phenomenon with this particle wave duality and uh, the fun phenomenon pretty much of shadows and colors, etc. But when light actually enters our eyes, magical things happen in our brain. The gap between knowing what light is in science to the everyday perception of our physical surroundings to how light actually moves into an emotional framework in our daily life is both complex and constantly changing. Light plays a key role in our culture and humanity. It's always acted as an emotive means of connecting to the human subconscious to relate memories and experiences that is beyond human reasoning or understanding. It provides a context similar to that of a scene in a play or in a movie. And I'm also a strong believer that the fundamental and the best light for human is daylight. Daylight is the source of everything on earth and the quality and variability of daylight play a huge role in shaping different cultures around the world. And that's why light can have such an overpowering power to influence the perception of our physical surroundings, shaping our experience in our daily life. And as a lighting designer, I often refer light as a fourth dimension of architecture and it creates atmosphere, ambiences, and connecting people to space emotively, influencing how we behave and experience our environment in a language that is made up of different characters of light. So what I want to quickly show here is share with you a quick showreel of projects where we have used light to characterize a building structure or exterior or interior spaces which can turn curates these spatial narratives and shape experience for people. How lights would actually guide you through the festive seasons and space and uh, exteriors into a giant uh, display case of jewels lit from within. Also contributing maybe to an after dark environment, radiating quality and a sense of place with light and maybe creating and curating a perfect environment for athletes to break world records. But light can also use to create an iconic feature for some prestigious car launch. Basically, maybe creating a piece of light art installation to transform pedal power to joy. That's a way of sort of translating energy and shaping outdoor space to encourage social cohesion and interactions. And fundamentally, the purpose use of uh, daylight will create ideal working condition for people. So really daylight is the best light and it's free. And there's no, it's no brainer that's as a first step for any line designers to actually consider the most healthy lighting is to consider daylight first. And, and you can see there's a range project that's a very early stage working closely with the architects to, to explore how can bring the best daylight in for a certain sort of sculpted facades or roof lights or skylight in all kinds of projects, not just museum art galleries, but could be in airports, sports stadiums, etc. So it's really, it is kind of the first light as a guiding force for people. And all, as all living things on earth, including humans, have evolved under daylight through many, many years. A, a recent survey on the employee experience cited in the Harvard Business Review uh, back in September 2018, it's actually published some findings revealing that the fact that employees crave the one thing much more fundamental than beanbags or, or fancy desks that's essential to human needs are is the access of daylight and the views to the outdoors. Not only did the study 
find that the absence of natural lighting in and outdoor views detriments the um, employee experience, but also the employee actually admitted to feeling a lot more tired and gloomy in the absence of daylight. With urbanization and the densification of cities, for example, like London, access to daylight is becoming more challenging. And we have many developers also, there's a tendency to build buildings, commercial buildings, with much deeper floor space. So it's understandable that we need to have some alternative solution because we just couldn't get daylight sometimes into the really sort of deep planned space. And now with people spending 90% of the time indoor, there is a necessity to light a building well. And one of the most cited industry standards, I would say developed in addressing health and well-being, has been the well building standards. Anyway, even though our team has been developing or designing a lot of buildings, including our own one, to achieve the well platinum and gold certification, etc., it's always important for us to try to go beyond uh, checking a box. And a lot of time we do use our home projects to test, but also pushing boundaries of our design to improve the advice that we, we give clients, not just about to um, meet the minimal criteria that's sort of stated in, in the building standard, the well standard, but also go beyond is understanding how people maneuver and use different kinds of spaces for work. Uh, is work really just by the desk or it is a lot more about um, the collaborative spaces with people, spaces that we take a break from our work, places that we use for ponder, reflecting, contemplating, and also getting inspirations as well. And uh, so we know that circadian lighting is not just about a system that we recommend the client but it is a total solution that we need to keep exploring as well so our some of our most ambitious experiments actually are through projects through our own projects that are done on our own turf and i'll come back to that a bit later and we also need to bear in mind that designing for health and well-being is more than compliance with well and we need to understand that the non-visual effects of light uh, exposures are dependent on a number of factors and there's certainly areas where there's still more exciting research to be done. Or but until then, that means we need to keep experimenting, which I think as a designer, this is not unusual and it, even with design, it is a constant explorations as well. So exper experimenting exploration. But what I think it is the kind of ultimate truth that I would say our approach will based on is when we look at what is truly sustainable, the only real model is nature, is uh, what we can actually look at the natural world and what we can learn from it. And we have seen in the industry um, numerous kind of color changing solution that is kind of based on learn from the nature, change in the color temperature over the day, warm to cool, white to warm again towards the night and evening. And we have also seen Orbok University in collaboration with a number of lighting industry partners has been developing and, and scientifically validating a double dynamic lighting concept, a concept that's uh, used cool white uh, ambient light to mimic the diffuse skylight and then a warm task light to mimic directional sunlight. And it is interesting how they bring that concept into a workspace because it's certainly something that's been developed, designed, installed in a lot of museum spaces where we're trying to integrate daylight with artificial light. I mean, we go to say decades ago when we were doing the Tate Modern project up in the, the upper levels where we have daylight coming through the, um, the, the glass ceilings like boxes. 
a balancing of chromaticity um, is the techniques they use into those glass boxes to create a diffuse ambient lighting environment. And with track, track mounted spotlights, is that's, that's where this kind of warm light brought in to highlight uh, various objects. So it's interesting so bringing the concept into the workspace as well. And for us, uh, as I said before, we, we are strong believers of daylight. So while the research will still have a lot of sort of new conclusions be drawn to plug all the gaps of what are the other factors of light that can influence our physiological well-being, we believe that the best reference is daylight. So we've been thinking about how about syncing the indoor lighting with nature in real time. So they kind of got over the, the seasonal changes, the changes of the longer days over the summer months and the shorter days over the winter months, and how the, the quality of light changed from a color uh, spectral perspective as well. So what we did uh, in our London office a couple of years ago, I think, think about this 2019, is uh, we built ourselves a, an IoT a spectrometer up on the roof, place it on the roof of the building to capture the real-time data of daylight, both from intensity point of view as well as the spectral power distribution and pushing these data into the cloud and then use these data to inform and tune the spectral profile of the indoor lighting system that we've got installed in our pilot study for the mock-up. And the purpose of study is really as line designers, we want to get a much deeper insight and experience and to understand how the non-visual benefits of daylight uh, through the electric lighting system um, that could affect us and we can experience the, the cognitive performance, alertness and the mood itself. But good, this is sort of very much a, a specific um, investigation that we looked into. But as I touched on before, to address human health, it is about the complete physical, psychological, as well as the social well-being. So what it really comes down to for good design is we do need to consider the aesthetic element, creating spaces that we really want to be, want to use, the emotional aspect, understanding how the intrinsic, personal and emotive relationship we have with light for the kind of task that we want to do, and also the physiological aspect, as we talked about earlier the impact of light on the functions of the body and of course visuals as well. So it is important that we understand our perception on these uh, multiple functions. And other contextual consideration also need to be thought about as part of the kind of design toolkit for good design, like the workspace, workforce, the work style. Nowadays with the post-pandemic, thinking about uh, how we work post-pandemic, are we going to be in a hybrid working environment, more agile? What, why would people want to come back to the office? For what purpose? There's a lot more sort of social human interactions that will draw people back and this kind of collaboration where it's co-creating spaces. So it's still to watch them. There are very extreme school of thoughts of what people would be, be uh, leave is going to happen. But I think it's going to be transition. The next three months will be very different from the next six months, a year, two years, etc. But what, what we've observed over even the, the, with the pandemic disruptions is the trends is already there. It's just the disruptions help to accelerate it. So what is right, what's good for lighting, I think it's not going to change very much. It's probably accelerate in a way that we would have way and probably more of a chance of working together to, to move towards it. So to conclude, light is fundamental to our social infrastructure. And there is more to applying healthy lighting for well-being in our workspace, which is what we touch on. So the truly humanity-centric approach will have to be considering how light impacts people, 
the environment and also the ecology, etc. But throughout the day, how we plan, how we design for cities, our neighborhoods, the urban precincts, from macro to micro scales, where we live, how we live, work and play, whether it's outdoors, indoors, or a mix, mixed mode, but also day to night. All these is part and parcel. I think as a lighting designer, we need to consider and we need to consider in, in the sort of holistic, in a kind of totality way through the 24 hour cycle. And, and I think the learning will continue. And I think these kind of exchange platform will be really helpful because there's so much we can learn from each other, good practice that we can share as well. Thank you. That was absolutely fascinating. And what an impressive range of projects you've been I feel as if I've walked in a number of your buildings and now I know why they were so remarkable so thank you I have a couple of questions for you one of them is that you mentioned that you'd done some experiments on your own space and that capturing what was going on outside and then beaming that inside were you able to capture any feedback from yourself and your colleagues about how that felt did you feel any benefit of that well, it's very interesting. For the pilot study, we worked with the University of Newcastle, Professor Anya Hilbert, together with a PhD student who's actually resident with, with us at the time. So what we did is also is a set of, I would say, questionnaire that we monitor outside that we have to fill in every day, but also every week, just to understand the kind of the broader how we are getting on in terms of our life as well as a feeling so it's more capturing the mood side but also what we have is we have to sort of wear every day a set of what we call the active devices on our wrist so that's of this trial to gather streams of data from each of the participants that is sitting under the, the setup of the scheme and there's a lot of questionnaire a lot of recordings of people sleeping hours quality of sleep etc in there and in addition, all, all what the Actigraph watch is recording is also our activity throughout the whole day at the body temperature, the illuminance level exposure that we have throughout the day and night, as yes, we're wearing it throughout when we're sleeping as well. And then there's also the, the visual kind of attention games that we all have to do at different time of the day. I think it's the morning uh, and then afternoon ones as well, just to make sure that we have the subjective as well as the objective data response to a different scene that we set up. In terms of the scene that we have, we started with the normal lighting we have in the office, which is fluorescent as a baseline that we sort of started with that. And then we implement uh, a new set of, um, I would say the lighting technologies that we put in there, we're working with LED motives. So they, they, they brought in a seven channels and engine that can really match the daylight through the difference of spectral distributions. We set up sort of two different scenarios. Uh, one is to keep the photopic lux a certain way all the way through, and then the other one is sort of changing the melanopic lux all the way through. And uh, we, we test out all the different scenarios. And then the final one that we did was the one that I showed earlier is actually capturing the data from daylight in real time and use that data draw from the cloud to push for the engine and how it's changed and to make sure that it's changed a certain way. But what we found out from the study is that interestingly, the industry sort of standard of having a cool light up to a certain time and then bring down the color temperature 
in a sort of prescribed way, and how we actually compare that with the, the real-time data in terms of daylight monitoring, we noticed that actually for the hours when it's still during the day, there's no need to keep the light warm if we just take it from, from the information of the daylight data. And it's interesting that if we can do that, that means the energy saving will be much higher. You can use it so much cooler light in that way. And what we're doing is not trying to manipulate in a way is maximize the, the efficacy of the light, but it is truly is, is um, replicating what we anyway will be encountering outside if we have gone outdoor. So this is certainly is an area that worth more exploration in the future on life projects, but also through laboratory research as well. But it is something that is unusual that we discovered rather than what we think the mm. industry just do. Certain time, you just switch to warmer light as a sort of standard time you do that. Yeah. And I guess it means that panels can be simpler. I mean, this whole the, adding the tunable layer makes things much more complicated and more elaborate. At the moment, based on certain research, if we just look at the well standard, you design for a certain melanopic lux level for the morning time and in the afternoon, you don't need to do that that absolutely fine. I think we're just not the kind of medical practitioners to say, is it okay in the sort of more longitudinal study of that. But until the research is conclusive, I think if we agree that daylight is the best light and uh, trying to inform the indoor lighting, the, the, the areas that you don't get the daylight penetration to mimic the daylight spectral on a seasonal basis, on a sort of based on the, the, the weather condition that you are encountering, I can't say it's wrong, but this is what the nature is. Mm -hmm. I just wonder if anyone um, in the audience might have a view on that as well, because sometimes when you present it, you don't, in this sort of webinar, you don't get some more of a direct view as a discussion, as in a sort of real auditorium. Absolutely. I, I, anybody like to, to post in, in the chat? Certainly one of the participants sent a message to me before this meeting asking whether you had a view on whether the melanopic lux in the world standard was useful, whether it was something to, to be aimed for, if it was a baseline. Do you have a view on that? I think I would say I would generalise the view as any standards. I think standards are actually an integral part of a good design. I mean, some people might say, yeah, designers, if we're good designers, we don't, we can discuss standards. But really, I think standards, the role of standards actually play a role in transferring, but also translating some knowledge, new knowledge discovered through research and any lesson learned and best practice where institute could be fine tuning refining some of the standards so that people coming, being some newcomers to the field would at least know the baseline of what good might look like. And of course, as you build your experience, you would have more understanding and diagnosis of a certain space that you need to design for. You will add your experience, the mastery side on top of it. But standard, I think is still very important. And I would think the well would this that the standards on the melanopic lux, the requirements is well-based, well-founded on a set of research that have been conducted at the time. And working with well, you can see the standards also keep evolving as well. So when new research come in or new way of approaching the standard as such emerge, they are quite open in accepting it. For me, I'm, I'm a strong advocate on the circadian stimulus. And now I think it's been put into appendix in the latest version now. So I think with standards, as long as 
is I think it's treated as life rather than standards that's done 30 years ago and, and no one bothered to go back to change it. As long as life and people get re revisiting it, then it's good it's good thing to have. And same as for the Nopic Lux as well, as long as the way how that is being approached and treated and being reviewed in a sort of regular way, according to what new research findings come through, then that is not an issue at all. Yeah. Thank you. That's a really, really great response. And certainly I've been lucky enough to meet online Rob Lucas, who set up this measurement about melanopic lux, and he's obviously very open. He, he understands the limitations of it, but as you suggest, it's just a great place to start. And Nina asked the interesting question, and it's something that I've wondered about also, is what happens when you have, when you live in the north? Actually, it's dark at half past four, and particularly if, if light levels affect your mood, then how do you cope Surely, if you're in the far north, you don't want it to be dark as the same time it's dark outside, or, or do you? What's your view on that? Well, this is, a, this is about the seasonal differences on the length of day. We believe it's very important that whatever we do in terms of the color temperature of the interior light, if we're going to change the colors, I think it's best to use daylight as a reference, the daylight availability as a reference of how you model and change the profile. So nowadays, we have much longer days. If I have been in the office, there's no need to change the, the kind of the cooler elements or the cooler side of the lighting in the office to a warmer light until much later uh, in the evening, eight, nine o'clock, if someone is still working in the office, that's the time when you probably start changing it. So using daylight as a reference is, is my starting point. But if the question is more about the seasonal affective disorder, then I would say seek medical advice. And of course, it's something that's important to deal with. But I wouldn't just uh, be someone behind the control of office lighting to trying to adjust and make sure that everybody would, would be hived up in, in a certain way. And actually, that was that brought me to something that I remember it was years ago probably near 20 years ago now because as I say we keep doing experiment on ourselves as well and I don't think at the time there was the, the new color range that's brought in from a lighting manufacturer uh, 17,000 K lamps the kind of really cool blue fluorescent light and supposed to be healthy lighting to help to suppress the melatonin and uh, lift your mood and I recommend you to go to the office or, or some kind of light shower room to elevate uh, the kind of after lunch dip that sort of things we we were a much smaller team then uh, at Harrop, and we happened to have an office space that is kind of semi in the basement. So not much daylight comes through the light well at all. So that is almost like a perfect, perfect environment for us to test out the lighting system that we designed with a very simple channels of light with separate up lighting and down lighting system. And so these are all fluorescent fixtures. And we, we do the experiment on ourselves swapping these 17, 1000 K lamps with 3000 K and 4000 K in different combination up light, down light, etc. And one of the, the, the scenarios that we set up was both up and down light are with the 17,000 K lamp throughout the full couple of weeks that we have ourselves working in that environment all throughout the day. And so we actually got a couple of colleagues said it's cool, but they couldn't sleep at night. And when they can't sleep at night, they started developing more and more migraine. And in a way that you might solve the problem for one day of boosting the intention of falling asleep after lunch, but over the time, it doesn't work. And, and also, I must say at the time, those two particular colleagues do work a bit late at night as well, till about eight, eight o'clock, still in the office because they live next door. 
so this is kind of problem is without the kind of really understand the experience that you, you need to understand what the limitations of of these life because in the in the end it is manipulating hormones in our body and it's important that as a professional we we are responsible of how we design what we design what we do to the people to the environment etc it will have a long-term effect so we need to be careful about that thank you i mean ruth makes a really interesting point about the cost of these very complex subtle powerful systems that can as you say manipulate the way that our brains and bodies are working and I guess that brings me to a point, but how do you go about explaining to your clients why they should spend more on posh lights? I mean, obviously you work on gorgeous big posh buildings, but what I see is the bread and butter projects. I'm here in Bridport Town Council, getting them to understand why they should change out the fluorescent or the compact fluorescence in places for sensitive people, or even for the places for the weddings, is something that we really struggle with. So how, how do you invite people to understand why they'd spend £40 on a panel instead of 12 How does that work? Yeah, I'll probably share a couple of examples. I think maybe 10, 15 years ago, when LEDs are just round the corner, and every single project, we almost have to do a feasibility studies report to demonstrate to the client the payback with the LEDs running fluorescent really is it worth doing it and we talk about a simple payback uh, relamping time the, the labor costs etc and once the estate agent for letting out office space have the list of what a 21st century office should have as a facilities and fixtures and led lighting is listed there's a box to check no more feasibility studies needed because if you don't have LED lighting, forget it. You can't let out that floor space. So simple. You don't even need to prove anything. So there's something about the cultural change in there. It's not just about, well, it's the monetary side, but it's a cultural change of expectation of if you just don't cross that line, you just can't even achieve a certain premium rate at all. So in terms of client difficulty clients, I think the most difficult ones is actually the Arab client. So recently, when we've been doing this pilot studies, we've also been looking into the refurbishment, our new office space across the road. It's a new build project, and it's a very deep plan office in a very tight packed plot. It's to convince our own COO that it's worth spending a bit more money, particularly catering for the areas that we know we don't get their penetration at all. And that is quite an interesting conversation. At one point, actually, the easiest conversation is when you can actually switch to okay so you have this floor space daylight is whatever percent areas it is and then there's certain areas that is just no daylight at all how can you justify of putting anyone there that they don't have an equitable workspace compared with others how can you justify space that are classified as unwell and then when this kind of well and unwell sort of come in it's not about trying to put in an equation of productivity and so on, but it is that expectation. Well-being is important now in every employee's mind and well-being in all sorts of sense, not just of a physical work environment, but in terms of how you deal with your people, your staff, the EDI side, the mental well-being, how people feel that they have the opportunity within, within the firm as well. All these things will come in. So well-being start become a hot topic. Then you switch to say the mode of you can't afford to have a space that is kind of the second rate kind of space. And actually, I quite like to answer Ruth's questions there also about uh, expensive system being put in. 
Well, actually, with the pilot study that we've done, yes, the, the light engine that was used there was the lighting technology itself can be very expensive, and it's probably it doesn't have the the right form factor at the time. I think a linear lighting would have been better for our workspace. But through the study, when we actually worked out how we can extract the real-time data and use that to inform the indoor lighting, rather than having a full spectral matching, we translate that into a color temperature using, I think, more of a commercially available LED chip that we can control and to map the CCT that way, rather than fully map the spectral distribution of the light, but we translate into CCT, but in real-time information and map it into something that we could afford and uh, within actually a normal commercial rate of our fixtures. And if you can take all the boxes and convince the, even the CEO who look very, very tightly into our account book on that, then it's a win-win. So I think it's just really for a project is finding a best way of what's reasonable as well, what really need to be controlled in a good lighting and where you have daylight coming in, then maybe those light could be, a, doesn't need to be at, at that extensive of a control provider rather than canvas, everything have the same, same level of controls requirement. Thank you. So it sounds as though when it's going to become the new normal is when there's an understanding that the employee's health and well-being is part of what you'd expect, like having a place to make tea and coffee or gender neutral toilets and the other things you'd expect in a normal democratic working environment. Yes. And, and also it's understanding what's the nature of work as well, because even the nature of work is changing. Before the lockdown, the space was probably designed with lots bangs of uh, desk rows and rows of them and not that we enjoy that kind of working but it's trying to convince that actually we want more collaborative working space than these kind of bank of desks everybody's sitting in the computer not talk to anyone at all when they do talk on a phone you start disturbing your neighbors the pandemic actually give us a chance to reflect on what is really right to go forward, what is really needed for people to work in the most efficiently and why would people actually want to come back to the office. If we want a, this kind of face-to-face -face meeting online, being at home, it's much easier in a way that I can switch from one meeting to a meeting without having got on a flight and, and, and conduct it. But also it's when I do want to do very good high concentration working, I don't have anyone disturbing me talking on the phone elsewhere. But then reserve the time when we actually come to the office, a physical space to truly, truly interacting with others, to co-create, to inspire each other, to really exchange knowledge and to learn from each other. But now it's giving a chance to really reflect on how we work, what might work better and whether that will change the lighting requirement. Maybe for those kind of co-creation space, it, it can set even more, maybe a bit of more fun and splash of colors into the space and have other opportunities as well. But this is kind of a constant experimenting and, uh, and exploring as well. That's what the context of who we're designed for, what kind of workspace, work style, the workforce is so important. And I guess also the business model, I'm sorry to bring this back to cash again, because actually we know that it's not about that, but we also know that if people are going to make a move from what they're used to doing into something different, there needs to be some sort of an incentive there. And it sounds as though the idea about employee well-being as the productivity tool can be something. And also this idea that the real estate, the agents are going to say, if it hasn't got this, it's not on the map. You can't start to sell your building at that price. Yeah, but I think those conversations, it's, there's always this thought of bringing lighting designers in, lighting professionals onto a project is going to cost you. 
because they're going to start specifying something a lot more expensive because they would be just waving their hands like that. No, it's not. Actually, I would say when you bring professionals, they're actually value for money. They would, they should be having a much more deeper conversation as a consultant, really trying to understand from the client, from the architect or the designers, collaborators, how the space is going to be used, who is it for, and really explore a good values opportunity and make sure that the qualities is really well inbuilt into the scheme itself. So that's my view, but hopefully that's what others will think as well. I think it's a no-brainer in a way, but it sounds as though the lighting design profession also has a little journey to make because as I understand it, and that was something that John Bullock mentioned to me a while ago, that about 80% of people who specify lighting have little or no training in, in lighting design and aren't able to bring that level of expertise and sophistication to the conversation. So how it can become the new normal is that people get used to speaking to somebody like you or some of the other amazing designers in this room today to begin to, to shift that conversation to talk about how lighting can really contribute. Yeah, I think the, the lighting community are a very sociable bunch and we love talking to each other a lot. But we also, each of us have our own sphere of influence. And if we start to really do more of talking to others and educating people in that way, and then even with standards, making sure there are standards around that are kind of life standards, that there is not outdated, that standards that are relevant so that people, I think more of a layman can refer to and have a basic understanding of what good quality lighting is about and what to look for. I mean, I've been to some friend's house when they switch over or ceiling down lights into LEDs. It's just flicker like mad. And then they're just so... It's not even, it is cool blue, but it's, just, it's something that is completely distorted your, your facial complexion uh, completely. And that's what they get. They go to and buy somewhere. And then they didn't realize that there's something wrong with it or something that they could have got better because they just don't know what good could look like. And I think if there's um, more of those conversation, but also opportunity for general public to see more of what the goods could look like and look for even basic specifications on the, on the packaging of the color temperature, that would make a big difference. I think now it's much better, but I think a few years ago when LEDs first introduced the domestic market, it is horrendous. Even for some of the commercial retail spaces, there was one W. Smith near where I live, it was one of those that replaced all their fluorescent with LED tubes. You walked in, you thought, well, actually before you walked in, you thought the, the store is closed, it's so dark in there and why would they still let that happen this improved over the years but there's probably still a lot more to do yeah i i agree certainly that's why the lunar project was so interesting yes. 1.8 million kids went yeah uh, what what can we do about it and it's, it keeps on growing i mean in germany they're just watching these videos over and over it's amazing because there's all this scare stuff about blue light but they don't know what else to do i think you're absolutely right my vision is to move the light bulbs out of the bleach counter you know the place where the bleach and the toilet rolls into the place where there's the healthy eating and the organic food because it has the same level of impact on our health and, and well-being somebody else sent a question by email earlier i'd just love to ask your views on this you showed some beautiful schemes about lighting at night and you've written some lovely things about inclusivity and mobility and social nighttime economy what's your view about how spaces with bigger windows or lighting affect the environment or the ecology around us? It's very interesting. I'm just working on a project at this moment, have that discussion, because as a lighting designer, we don't want to 
absolutely light up all these the public realm space outside the immediate building with big poles, uniform flood lighting the space. So we, we try to go for something more atmospheric scheme and rely on there will be some light spill from triple height glass windows that there will be some light blowing outside so you don't really need a lot of light to filter in those areas. So that's great. And then there is, I wouldn't say a contradicting, but then there is a newer movement trend of thinking about biodiversity, net biodiversity gain. So it's not just about designing what it is, but also think about you put in new kind of landscape and bring a new sort of biodiversity and even introducing bats onto the sites, even though that is not what their normal habitat is. So that is the kind of a good angle to, to really, when we build new development, we actually put something back to the planet rather than keep taking resources and depleting it. So I think there's good approach, but that's the, where the challenge comes because with some of the biodiversities, the, the light at night could be an issue, which is also an opportunity because rather than them coming in saying there need to be so many square meters of all these new things to be put in, you then can engage with a conversation. It's actually looking across the site where reasonable to focus on to have the biodiversity gain design in and where not. And there may be some, something that needs to work with where people go and where people don't go or go less after certain hours. So then that becomes rather than just a canvas lighting scheme of one solution, that solution would actually bring the time dynamic to it, the controls dynamic to it, how we balance out between the needs of human and the ecology into it. And ecology is not even there, and it is something that they will introduce. So I think it's introducing new opportunities. There's a new challenge, it's a good challenge. If we can make it work, even better for the world. So let's try to work with it. So on the glass side, yes, that is something to think about. And the question is whether after a certain time you might consider putting certain screening materials for the glass, if there's some interior space still to be used, or you actually dim out those lighting and have some other sort of more functional lighting to take over in whatever way. So I think people need to collaborate and work through what solutions could be. So that's not a one answer, but it's certainly something you need to really consider well because is mitigation to start, but also we need to start planning for actually more greening, more ecology being introduced to the site and lighting also need to anticipate what's needed, what should be the right thing to do at nighttime, but also during the daytime as well, what species need, what kind of daylight. Uh, I think there's a lot of balancing act um, that professionals need to work together. That's fascinating. I suppose that's another balancing act, which is this question between healthy lighting, full spectrum lighting and energy efficient lighting. Do you think that's a, a false dichotomy? Well, I would have said, yes, the human needs need to come first, but the human needs are all embracing. You don't want to waste energy either. So with the one of the outcome, which I found is interesting and neat and worth following up on, is if we really think about what the, the well standard might be looking for and what color temperature might tend to be more efficient in a way of generating lumens coming out, then having a better link with the daylight availability would mean that we, we will optimize the actual energy that's needed to provide a good lighting environment. So it is that sort of balance that really, as a designer, we need to understand daylight and how to work up a scheme that work with daylight because I mean, from an energy perspective, the cooler light actually would use less energy than the, the warmer light. So that's one thing. 
And the other thing about the energy aspect is also generally daylight design for as a city level. Daylight planning is an area that I think there could be more work uh, and more progress on. Because when you start packing cities much tighter, you can't get the daylight into the buildings as a start. So it doesn't matter how much glazing on, the glazing actually create more of a issue or challenges than actually helping to bring daylight in because there's just no daylight getting to the lower levels of a very, very narrow streets floor. So the starting point is more beyond building. And, and that's why I was thinking about regenerative design with sustainable regenerative, it's have to be at all scales. When you come to a space, a room, there's only so much you can do. But if the city is designed well and with the right kind of balance and enabling uh, the green infrastructure to be put in place for people and the right kind of shapes for people depends on the, the climate of the particular geographic locations. All these need to be put in. And so that's why this is a very exciting, expanding profession. If you care about light, there's just so much more you can do to get to know more about the light, but also somewhere you can influence and make a difference to the world as well. So everyone, let's push on, on that. <laughs> on that clarion call. Thank you to all of you for your company and particularly to you, Florence, for your inspiration and ongoing championing of the power of light and how we can use that for a happier, healthier, more productive world and a, a more sustainable world for us and for the creatures that we live with. So thank you so much. And thank you for inviting me. So this Lunar Pro project, there'll be a series of interviews and Florence has kindly agreed to be part of the ongoing project. So there's more to come. So uh, thank you all for your company and enjoy the rest of your evening. Better go out and enjoy the last of the daylight. Uh, thank you again. <laughs>